This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jam calling from The Post. I'm President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 15th. Today, a conservative court grants a victory to gay and trans workers, minority doctors suffering in the UK, and how it feels to be a black journalist. The Supreme Court decided today that federal anti-discrimination law protects gay and transgender workers. I'm Robert Barnes. I cover the Supreme Court for The Washington Post. It was a major ruling from the court, a bit of a surprise. It was written by one of the court's most conservative justices, Neil Gorsuch, who was President Trump's first nominee to the court. And before we get into some of the details of that decision, briefly, can you describe what were the two cases that brought this issue up in the Supreme Court in the first place? We'll hear argument first this morning in case 171618, Bostick versus Clayton County. The court heard from two workers who said that they had been fired because their employers learned that they were gay. When an employer fires a male employee for dating men but does not fire female employees who date men, he violates Title VII. The employer has, in the words of Section 703A, discriminated against the man because he treats that man worse than women who want to do the same thing. And another case came from a transgender woman who said that she was fired for being transgender. Amy Stevens is a transgender woman. She was a valued employee of Harris Funeral Homes for six years until she told her boss that she was going to live and identify as a woman. When Harris Holmes responded by firing her, it discriminated against her because of her sex for three reasons. So, Bob, were you there for the oral arguments for these two cases? Yes, I was. And Justice Gorsuch sort of set up exactly what this opinion was going to be about. When a case is really close, really close on the textual evidence, and I... Assume for the moment, I'm, no. I'm with you on the textual evidence, is close, okay? He indicated that the law seemed to point in one direction for him, but he also worried about what a decision like this could mean for society in general. At the end of the day, should he or she take into consideration the massive social upheaval that would be entailed in such a decision and the possibility that that Congress didn't think about it, so, and that, um, that that is a more, effect, more appropriate legislative rather than a judicial function. That, that's it. It's a question of judicial modesty. So, first of all, federal courts of appeals have been recognizing that discrimination against transgender people is sex discrimination for 20 years. There's been no upheaval. So how did the majority of the court come to their decision in favor of protecting LGBT worker rights? Well, basically, the majority agreed with the lawyers for these workers and the major gay rights groups that had taken up their case in saying that it's impossible 
to discriminate against a homosexual or a transgender worker without discriminating because of their sex. The purpose of Title VII, as this court defined it, was to make sex irrelevant to people's ability to succeed at work. To make sex irrelevant to people's ability to succeed at work. When Harris Holmes fired Amy Stevens because it learned about her sex assigned at birth being different from her gender identity, it did not make sex irrelevant to her ability to succeed at work. It made it determinative. The example that Justice Gorsuch used was two employees. They do the same job. They do the same work. They're both attracted to men. But if one of them is male and is fired for that and the other is female and she is kept on despite of that, then you are discriminating because of the person's sex. So for the plaintiffs in this case who were making the argument that they were discriminated against unfairly, what they were looking to was the Civil Rights Act of 1964, saying that that act actually protects their rights as LGBTQ people. That's right. And they weren't making the argument that Congress intended to protect gay workers or transgender workers. But he said that the Congress used very broad language, that this because of sex is very broad. And it has been interpreted over the years to mean various things. For instance, it protects women who become mothers. And so he said that even though that's probably not what Congress was doing, intending to do in 1964, that the broad language that they use is what the court has to look at. And that in this modern context, it does apply to gay and transgender workers. So this was a 6-3 ruling. Who were the three justices who were in the minority and what argument did they make? Well, the three who were in the minority were Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Brett Kavanaugh, who was President Trump's other nominee to the court. And they basically said that their colleagues were amending the law, not interpreting it. Justice Alito wrote a dissent that was joined by Justice Thomas, said that if you took a survey of every person in 1964, that none of them would have thought that this is what Congress was doing when it was passing a law that forbid discrimination because of race and because of sex. And Justice Kavanaugh didn't join that dissent. He wrote his own, but he said basically the same thing, that Congress has had opportunity in the past to add gay and transgender workers to those who were protected by the law. Congress refused to act on that, and that should be enough for the court to know that these workers aren't protected. This is also happening at an interesting time because the Trump administration just essentially rolled back protections for transgender people in health care. So how will this Supreme Court decision intersect with with some of the things that are coming out of the White House that seem somewhat at odds with it? Well, I think the fact that this, you know, sort of omnibus, broad anti-discrimination federal statute has been interpreted this way will go a long way to saying that gay and transgender people cannot be treated differently. 
you know, there are still other areas that aren't covered by this law. Housing, for instance, isn't covered by this law. This is just about employment discrimination. But it certainly seems like the court has taken a, a pretty bold stand here. And I'm also curious about what this decision says about the court itself, especially the fact that you have Neil Gorsuch, Trump appointee, widely considered this conservative justice, that he is writing the majority opinion in favor of LGBT rights. Well, he struggled with this at the oral argument. He said, you know, that by the court's past precedents, by the way he looked at the law, it would seem to point in this direction where the court eventually ended up. At the same time, he said he thought that it would be a huge change for society. He brought up bathrooms, whether this means there could still be separate bathrooms. He seems to have worked through all of that in writing this decision. You know, and it's not uncommon for the court to assign an opinion to the maybe what we would call the shakiest member of the majority. In this case, since Chief Justice Roberts was in the majority, he got to pick who wrote this opinion, and he gave it to Gorsuch. And Gorsuch wrote an opinion that I think practically any of the gay rights groups would not find anything to object in. Would this decision, and particularly Gorsuch's role in this decision, give hope to LGBT advocates that this is going to be a court that will rule favorably on LGBT issues that come before the court in coming years? I think it depends on what they are. Remember that in this case, the court is interpreting a law, a federal statute. This was not a decision that raised constitutional rights. And when I say that, for instance, the five to four decision that said there was a right for gay couples to marry. That was a decision that was based on the Constitution. And in that case, Chief Justice Roberts was on the other side. He wrote a memorable dissent that said, you know, gay couples have every reason to celebrate, but they shouldn't think that the Constitution had anything to do with this. This was interpreting a statute. And so that is a different way that the court looks at things. You know, they look at the at the law as written. At the same time, the fact that it was a six to three decision seems pretty meaningful uh, to me, but there's a lot that's not in this. You know, the bathroom question is not in this. The separate locker room controversy is not in this. And so there are still a lot of issues out there uh, for the court to weigh in on at some point. Robert Barnes reports on the Supreme Court for The Post. So this is a story about how nearly all the doctors who have died in Britain have been from ethnic minority backgrounds, an astonishing 93%. 
And so I wanted to look at what's going on and, and who are some of these people. My name is Carla Adam, and I'm a London correspondent for The Washington Post. So let's start with Adil El-Tayar. Can you tell me who he is and what happened to him? Yeah, so Adil is a distinguished transplant surgeon. He's originally from Sudan, and he volunteered to step forward and uh, to tend to coronavirus patients who were in the emergency room, or the A&E, as it's called in Britain. And he is thought to be the first doctor in Britain to succumb to the virus. So he was a transplant surgeon, but he decided that he wanted to go work in the emergency room but because he just wanted to help in, in any way possible. At this point, he's working as a locum doctor and he's working in Hereford, which is a couple hours away from London. And he volunteered to work in, in the emergency room. While he was there, the pandemic was beginning to sort of make the news and people were, were becoming more uh, aware of it. I spoke to Adil El Tayar's son, Osman. He's a 30-year-old doctor. He also works in the NHS. He, he was aware that there was a, a risk there when he was coming to work, but I suppose um, he didn't think it was one of these things that would, um, you know, it was one of these things that you hear about on television, but didn't quite anticipate that it would affect him in the way that it did. He was born in Sudan, in uh, in Atbara, a railway town that was built by the British. At one point, he did return to Sudan to establish an organ transplant unit there, but he spent most of his adult life in Britain. He loved living in this country. He loved sort of being British and the whole British culture and, and everything. And, uh, you know, every time he'd go back to Sudan, he'd almost identify as, um, as uh, British, but he never forgot his roots. Mm-hmm. And that was a very sort of characteristic thing um, uh, about him. When I asked his son um, if he thought his father had the the PPE or the protective equipment that he needed, his son paused and said, "Well, uh, I think I mean given that given that he picked it up, he he clearly didn't." His family wasn't too concerned when he first fell ill, and indeed he he wasn't actually too concerned when he first became sick. But then, within two weeks of falling ill, he died. Yes. The, the worst thing that could happen to us, basically, just to put it in um, in 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 simple terms, I think since uh, since since this has happened, uh, you almost feel as if those sort of basic things that that represent a, a simple and stable life is is, is gone because now um, our family is not the family that we had. And so this doctor embodies what is happening with a lot of doctors and kind of foreshadowed this trend of healthcare workers who are immigrants or ethnic minorities who are being hit hardest by COVID. Yes, he's he's hardly alone. You know, in my story, I focus mostly on, on doctors, um, but this is also happening more broadly with healthcare workers as well. And with doctors, too, I think it's striking that the vast majority of those who have died are immigrants and they hail from Bangladesh and India and Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Sudan. The other doctor's family I spoke to, the doctor was named Abdul Chowdhury. He was originally from Bangladesh. So he he was concerned about his colleagues who were reporting that they weren't getting the PPE that they needed. And he was one of the first to publicly ring that alarm bell, which is something that the government has come under intense criticism for. My name is Intasar Asirajodri. I'm 18 years old. I'm in my final year of school. I lost my father on the 8th of April, and it's been quite hard since. 
Chowdhury's son, Intasar, who's really become a poignant voice in this debate over doctors getting enough protection. And he notably confronted the health secretary, Matt Hancock, live on air and asked him if he... Do you regret not taking my dad's my dad's concerns, my 11-year-old sister's dad's concerns, and my wife's husband's concerns, seriously enough, my dad that we've all lost? I'm into so I'm really sorry to uh, about your your dad's uh, death, and um... so the government has announced that for those families who die on the front lines, their families will receive a sixty thousand pound payout. And when Intasar was asked about this, he said, you know, I'd rather let's give that sixty thousand pounds to go towards PPE for for doctors on the front line. I'd rather that money go to healthcare staff on the front line who aren't getting what they need rather than than my family. So doctors, the immigrant doctors, the immigrant nurses, any healthcare workers from a minority background, every single worker that gives up their life, that sacrifices their own safety for the welfare of others deserves the most respect. Britain is a nation that relies heavily on immigrants to run its public health care system, the NHS. There are staff shortages here, so they recruit heavily from abroad. In fact, last year there were more doctors that were brought in from abroad than trained in, in England. And the doctors who've died, the vast majority of them were immigrants. And why is this happening? Is this basically a reflection of the fact that the that demographically the, the workforce of doctors and healthcare workers in the UK is so diverse? Or is there something specific that, that makes minorities in the UK more vulnerable? So 44% of the doctors in England are ethnic minorities. So that does not explain why 93% of those who've died have been from ethnic minority backgrounds. So so what's going on? Um, official stats here show that coronavirus is no great equalizer, that certain ethnic groups are more at risk. I mean, when I spoke to researchers, they pointed to a number of possibilities. Um, of course, one of them is socioeconomic class and researchers who study inequalities say that coronavirus is amplifying underlying inequalities in society. They're also looking at to see if maybe multi-generational households could play a factor uh, where you have people from different generations living under a single roof. Um, Underlying health conditions, you know, is there, we know that there's a greater prevalence in ethnic minorities for things like diabetes and hypertension and cardiovascular disease. Are these health conditions, you know, what role are they playing? They're thought to increase the severity of COVID-19. And so the main doctors union here has questioned whether there are other cultural or occupational factors at work. You know, are migrant doctors doing more of the frontline work with COVID patients? Are they working at some of the hardest hit hospitals in the most stressed settings? Some previous surveys have shown that ethnic minority doctors feel less confident than their white counterparts in raising safety concerns, and they report higher levels of bullying and harassment. So, I mean, these are all just theories, <laughs> and doctors' unions here want an investigation into what's going on, and they, they want to try to make some sense of these really grim mortality figures. You know, I, th- I think this story will probably strike a lot of people as ironic just because this is a time in the UK where ethnic minorities and immigrants are particularly vulnerable. And there is so much conversation with Brexit and otherwise about the role of of immigrants in British society in a way that's not dissimilar from what's going on in the US. And in both places, you have 
immigrants and minorities who are often the biggest block among healthcare workers, the people who are putting themselves at risk to help other people. And that does seem like an ironic part of this moment. I mean, I think that this has reminded Britons of just how heavily its beloved NHS relies on on immigrants and the sons and daughters of immigrants. I mean, this is a country, as you noted, that voted for Brexit in 2016. And in part, that was because of immigration. And, you know, so and now you've seen, you know, a focus on the role that many immigrants have played in the NHS that's getting noticed. I mean, these people came to Britain. They dedicated their life to the NHS. They had families and planted roots and they tended to Britain's sick and vulnerable and they paid the ultimate price for their adopted homeland. And that hasn't gone unnoticed. Carla Adam is a London correspondent for The Post. On Monday, the UK officially reopened non-essential businesses. With the third highest death count in the world, doctors are warning that opening up too soon could cause a spike in COVID-19 cases. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. It's a challenging time for small businesses in communities across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help you manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with other business owners who are facing similar challenges. From information on how to bring your business online to setting up a customer service plan, Facebook's Business Resource Hub has you covered. Learn more at facebook.com slash resource. That's facebook.com slash resource. And now one more thing about what it means to be a Black journalist right now. My name is Eugene Scott, and I'm a reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post. I was actually talking to other Black men and Black women at The Post and elsewhere who find covering police brutality against Black Americans to be a pretty traumatic experience. And I have covered so many deaths of Black men at the hands of police violence. And I don't find it any easier. And it is difficult and painful, you know, each time. And the depth to which I cover it, I think often may affect how deeply I'm connected to it, or maybe how much the uh, victim's story hits close to home, be it similar to my own or perhaps someone else I know. But it, it is always a very uncomfortable situation. My advice to Black journalists covering police violence is to try your absolute best. 
to get therapy or a counselor or someone who can help you navigate this very difficult experience uh, with the mental health attention that anyone writing about something this traumatic should have. You know, one thing I talk about often is how prevalent these videos of police violence are. And there's so much, you know, counsel to not share the videos because viewing death like that can be a very negative, uncomfortable, painful, harmful experience. But when you are a journalist writing about these things, you have to watch these videos. Uh, you have to watch them repeatedly. And that can't be the healthiest thing. And so I, I believe that a mental health professional could help journalists navigate that. Eugene Scott is a reporter for The Fix. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Post Reports listeners can help other people discover our show by leaving a review on your podcast app. And if there's someone in your life that you think would benefit from bringing a daily podcast into their routine, send them to postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. We know it's a challenging time for small businesses across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help manage your business. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.